Thank you so much, ladies. Let's take our Bibles and let's head back to that passage in First Chronicles. First Chronicles. If you're joining with us this morning, we've been doing a series on the life of David that, Lord willing, we'll wrap up next week. And I must admit that I am thoroughly, thoroughly uh, going to miss this study. I have learned a lot and profited personally. I don't know if it's been beneficial to you. I hope it has been in some way, shape, or form. But as I was thinking about this morning section of Scripture, where we're going to be going from First Chronicles 22 to chapter 29. Don't panic. We're only going to highlight a few spots. But as we go through it, there's a lot of political intrigue that's involved in just this whole section of Scripture. You know, in America, we have a lot of political intrigue. You know, a lot of comments about elections and how they are operating. And we think that modern days uh, elections are just so unique. Um, let me remind you a little bit about American history that there's been a lot of confusion and corruption in elections for quite a while. It doesn't make it right. But do you remember that there was, an, uh, there was a, a killing that was done at the late 1700s where Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton? over the idea of an election that Burr blamed uh, Hamilton for him not being able to be the president and ending up being vice president. But that's not the only time. There's a a time in the uh, 1878, they had an election that took place in the United States. And it was between Tilden and Hayes for presidency. Tilden won the popular vote. He also initially won all the electoral votes, or the, the majority electoral votes. But the Republicans held the Congress at the time, so they had committees go and investigate several states. They went to Ohio, Florida, Georgia, and Louisiana. Does it sound familiar? They went there, and they had these committees formed, and they went through the ballots, and they threw out a number of ballots until Hayes won the election by one one electoral vote two days before inauguration. So there's been some confusion. There's also been some elections that are kind of goofy with fraud or some things that are said. Let me give you one that's not fraud, but in 1950, the United States Senate race down in Florida, there was two fellows running against each other. There was um, Claude Pepper and George Smathers. And so Pepper decided that what he was going to do during the campaign is he was going to say things about Smathers that might turn people against Smathers and for for voting for him. So he started on his campaign stump. He started telling people some personal things about Smathers. He made it clear. He said he is a well-known extrovert, which caused a lot of people some concern. Then he went on. He said his sister is a thespian. You know, you know what a thespian is? An actress. And his parents, would you believe, his parents are homo sapiens, And before he got elected, when he was in college and before he got married, he practiced celibacy. Well, those concerns caused Smathers to lose the election because people didn't understand what the terms were. Well, then there's also been elections. In 1948, there was an election for a U.S. Senate uh, that took place down in Texas. Coke Stevenson's against Lyndon Johnson. And what's really strange about it is Johnson won the entire election, statewide total of all the votes when they were tallied up. He won by 88 votes. But what's kind of strange is there was over 200 votes in one precinct alone in Austin area that all the people were dead who voted. And in another precinct, another 200 dead people voted, but they voted in alphabetical order, the entire group. So things like that have happened. 
David's life was not immune from it. He was a king, and he's surrounded in his, in his political realm. There's been some shameful things that happened in David's life. We've talked about it. We talked about David and the corruption that took place where David got involved with an affair with a married woman, killed her husband to cover it up. We've talked about how his son raped his daughter, Tamar. Nothing was done. We talked about how the sons killed each other, the one killed the other one. We've talked about how rebellion has taken place. Not just one time, but there was two back-to-back civil wars that took place under his rule. And so David's had some difficult time. And yet when we look at David's life, and as we come to the close of his life in these last chapters, there is no doubt about it. That despite some of that negative press, some of that blemishes on his life, David was an outstanding king. Just outstanding. I know that those things that I just mentioned, they seem to get the more of our attention. But in reality, when David ruled for 40 years, the bulk of his rule was really, really good. There are a couple years that are really blemished, but outside of that, this guy did a phenomenal job. When he became the king, the tribes were all disorganized. Yes, Saul had been the ruler before, but when Saul wrapped up, they weren't united again. They had to be reunited as the 12 tribes. And there was enemies throughout the territory that were still fighting and still... It wasn't a cohesive national unity or a centrality of a government. David put it all together. David kept it together when there was those two great rebellions, the civil wars, one by his son and one by descendants of Saul. And so David, under his rule, he expanded Israel's territory like never before in history. He brought peace to that land like never before in history. He brought such security to the land. There wasn't even wars for 60 years in the last part of his reign and into Solomon's years. Wouldn't you like to live a lifetime without national war being talked about? Well, the Jews at that time, they did. They experienced that. And David becomes, as we've talked about time and time, he became the standard bearer, the standard for all the other kings that followed. They would be compared to him his rule, his walk with the Lord, his dedication to working for the nation and putting the people first behind God. And so you have this tremendous leadership of David, golden years. But when you start dissecting and looking at the latter part of Chronicles, you see, Chronicles doesn't give you a lot of the personal story. Samuel did that. Chronicles gives you a lot of the, a lot of the historical data. And as you go through the historical data and you deal with what happened from a historian's point of view, as far as the international affairs and the public uh, uh, administration of David, it is amazing some of the things you see in Chronicles where it talks about David, he defeats enemies that never before were defeated that he beat the Moabites, that he expanded all the way up to where the Syrians were, that he went to the river Euphrates, that David captured all kinds of loot, that he was making the Jews prosperous, but he was gathering a lot of it and putting it aside for a special project. David, there is no doubt about it. David was a tremendous military leader. And again, you and I have to understand, back at that time, that's what the king's job was. His primary job, protect the people take care of the enemies. And David just was phenomenal as a military leader. 
Not only that, David had just tremendous administrative skills. If we were to take the time to go through these chapters and look at these little points, we would find that David set up a standing army to provide protection for the people at any moment's notice. Like never before, the people were organized with their national guard and their, their, uh, their protection that way. He delegated leadership, judges throughout the different tribes so that the people knew exactly where to go. And there was this tremendous delegation of administrative officials. David sets up a treasury department where the funds are coming in and there's people that as a secretary of the treasury, somebody in charge to make sure things are done right. But not only does he do that with the treasury, but he does it with the agriculture. He does it with the animals listed out. Somebody taking charge, managing, giving advice, counseling, all these different areas. And so it talks about all of David's administration that he was just outstanding and amazing. And so the story gives us a lot of details about David to the point that it says the Lord God of Israel has given rest unto the people that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever. What a statement. Wouldn't it be great if all of a sudden we would hear on news this afternoon that whoever's in charge, the president or somebody was able to make just so that the United States, we are going to have no more inflation, we're going to have no more problems, crime is under control, and you know, taxes are going down. We would all be excited about that. Well, that's what they're hearing. That's what they're living. That's what those people are experiencing. And so David has done a tremendous job, but there's something that's caught my eye that I've read it before, but it never caught, you know, it just didn't register with me. I don't know if that ever happens with you. You read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible, but all of a sudden you see something you've never seen before. It was there, but all of a sudden it stood out. Is the amount of time and attention in David's latter years in the chronicle that gives his administration how much time it talks about David focusing on one thing. More than anything else, it's building the temple. In fact, David's story in First Chronicles only starts around chapters 12, uh, chapter 12, and there's 29 chapters uh, in total. So we're talking about 17 chapters given to David. Of those 17, seven are totally dedicated to what he did with the temple. And his, whole, his entire focus in his latter years was on this temple. Now, this temple, I don't know what it looks like. None of us today has any idea exactly what the temple looked like. The temple that David had Solomon, his son, build. We don't know. We have ideas, but we don't know. It was probably a little about the size, a little bit smaller than the size from this back wall to the entryway over there. Narrower. The ceiling might have been a little bit taller, but then on top of the ceiling of the sanctuary, they did some building that some suggest went up to 20 floors. So it was just this, not a huge building, but it was a massive project and expensive. To give you an idea of just expensive, some of you happen to know that there was a Super Bowl last week and it was played in L.A. in SoFi Stadium. Maybe a few of you are familiar with that and saw it. Well, that SoFi Stadium is now the most expensive sports arena in the world. SoFi Stadium costs $6 billion dollars. The temple that David built exceeded that. That temple that David, I say David built, David prepared and put his energies into. His son ends up building. That thing would fit within that football field. 
and much smaller, but it cost as much as SoFi Stadium with all the AC, the electronics, the technology. That simple building that David dedicated himself to cost far more than SoFi Stadium. It was an amazing building. It was so impressive that when it got built, they had 188,000 workers working on it a seven-year period on a rotation basis. And so when they put this thing together, what happens is it is so impressive that years later, it gets destroyed. The Babylonians wipe it out. When the Jews are taken out of the land for 70 years and then they come back, they rebuild on the same spot another temple. The old men, the old ladies, it says they cry because they, they, they see that they've got a temple again, but it's nothing like it used to be. And it's such an impressive building. In fact, when David says, I want to I get involved with this project, he says, we need to build the house that is built for God must be exceeding magnificent. New word. Okay, just it has to be magnificent. It's got to be talked about for all the countries. David was so engaged in this thing. And so what happens is David starts working on it. And what you see in those last two few chapters is David's commitment to this temple. And, and, and I have to stop and ask why. Why is he so committed to building a, a, a place where these people could come and worship? Well, you start thinking through from a Jewish point of view. They didn't have multiple churches. They didn't have synagogues at this time. They didn't have rural meeting places where they could meet in this town, had this little sanctuary they could meet, this little town. had. No, the entire nation has one temple. That is going to be where all of them come to worship. And so when you think about it, this is going to become the heart of the nation. This is what's going to bind the Jews together. They're, they're going to be centralized, not by a government, but by a religion. That it's going to be presented and it's going to be promoted through this one place, this one location. It's going to become the heart of the country. This is going to be where they all come as a nation and they get their religious training. This is going to be the place that all of a sudden they come on a regular basis and get right with God. You and I, we, we don't live that way. We live in a time and an age where we can pray at home and get right with God and there's no problem. We don't need, a, we don't need this building to, to, as part of our worship. We just happen to choose to have this spot where we gather. But in the Old Testament, this building was very critical. This is the place that God eventually is going to, once it's built, he's going to come and his presence is going to be seen by fire coming down from heaven. This is where God, from their perspective, God is dwelling. And this is going to be the place where they offer their sacrifices, their tithes. This is going to be the place where they teach their children. And they train their children to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind. And put no other God before him. This place is really important. It's important because David knew that this was to be the place that was to be a lighthouse, a beacon to the Gentiles around the world. That they were even going to create a courtyard on the outside where the Gentiles could come and worship, which by the time of Jesus Christ, it's corrupted by the Jews. That's where they have their bazaars and they're selling their animals and Jesus gets so upset because they lose their witness to the Gentiles. Well, anyway, David is saying, this is, this is how we're going to get the gospel out. This is how we're going to... This is so important to our lives, I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to invest in it. And he did. His commitment is amazing. Starting with chapter 22, let me show you. His commitment was personal. 
It was very personal. I say that because of this. David in chapter 22 is gathered with his son Solomon. And let's say it's this, it's like this is our court. This is our royal court. And David's here, Solomon's there, and the ones who are invited are the princes and the royal family and all the nobilities. Here we are, we're all gathered together, and David is getting gotten us together, and David has determined. He has said, this is the house of the Lord God. This is, this is where we're going to build it. This is how we're going to do it. And so what he does, he gets them all together in verse 6. And he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord God. And he said to Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you, should, you have uh, shed blood abundantly. You have made great wars. They shall, thou, you shall not build a house unto my name because you have shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of peace and I will give him peace from all his enemies round about for his name shall be Peace. Solomon, a form of Shalom. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you and prosper you and build the house of the Lord thy God as he has said of you. Only the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord thy God. Then you shall prosper. And if you take heed to Fulfill the statutes and judgments with the Lord God charged Moses with concerning Israel. Be strong, of good courage, dread not, neither be dismayed. Now behold, in my trouble I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a thousand thousand talents of silver, and of brass and iron without weight, for it is in abundance. Timber also and stone have I prepared that you may add thereto. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, hewers and workers of stone and timber, and all manner of cunning or skillful men for every work of the gold and silver and brass and iron there is no number arise therefore and be doing and the Lord be with you and he commanded all the princes of Israel to help Solomon his son saying is not the Lord your God with you has he not given you rest on every side for he hath given the inhabitants of the land into my hand and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God arise therefore build you the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God into this house that it is to be built to the name of the Lord. Oh, he wanted to do this. He shared with Solomon what happened years ago, but this I wanted to build. Now, Solomon, you do it. It was a very, very personal project on David's heart, something he really wanted to do, but he, but God said no. And he still says, I want to get involved. You know how some people, if you don't get to play it your way, you take the ball and go home. Not David. Not David. He is so committed to this personally that he says, even if my son builds it, I don't care. I just want this thing built. Even if I'm not going to get the credit, I'm going to be, it's forever going to be called Solomon's temple. That's okay because this needs to be built for God. He is so committed that he says, in my troubles have I prepared. And he's been under civil war the last few years. He's had all kinds of difficulties with Sheba and others. And in the middle of the difficulty, he's been putting aside, preparing for this project. He's committed, personally committed to the point that he, he says, hey, listen, all of you, all of you here, all my family, brothers, siblings to Solomon, cousins, nephews, all of you work with him. 
get together. People getting together when there's jealousy over who gets the throne. This is an amazing thought. All of you are going to work in a united effort. Please, please work in a united effort to get this temple. David was committed. Personally committed. So that he got this temple going. And what amazes me about this is David is so committed that even though Solomon at this time is described as young and inexperienced, by the way, the, the, the historians tell us that he's probably around 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. So he's inexperienced in how to do a building project. What does David do? Notice the next verse in the next chapter. David at this time, David determines he'll make Solomon king. David's still king. David's still alive. He's saying, Solomon, you will be king with me. And he is willing to give up his job so that this can get underway. He's willing to step out of the way to a degree so that under Solomon, because God said it has to be Solomon that initiates the exact building, we need to get it going so Solomon, it's time that you take over. That's personal commitment for him even to step away to a degree. And here we have his commitment seen in chapter 28. Chapter 28, after weeks... They get him, he does the same thing. Chapter 28, look what he does. He gets everybody together, verse 1. David assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes, the captains and the companies that ministered to the king by course, the captains over thousands, over hundreds, the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king, his sons, officers, mighty men, and with all the valiant men unto Jerusalem. And David said, Hear ye. Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and had made ready for the building. But God said unto me, You shall not build a house for me, because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Howbeit the Lord God of Israel chose me before all the house of my father to be the king over Israel forever. For he hath chosen Judah to be the ruler, and the house of Judah, the house of my father, among the sons of my father, he liked me to make me king over all Israel and of all my sons the Lord gave me many of them, he hath chosen Solomon my son to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel and he said Solomon thy son, he shall build my house and my courts for I have chosen him to be my son, I will be his father, moreover I will establish his kingdom, if he is constantly doing my commands, etc., etc. Now therefore in the sight of all Israel, in the congregation of the Lord, in the audience of the God, keep and seek for all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children. And Solomon my son, know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart, with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts. And he goes down to verse 10, Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. And so David once again says, Solomon, you do it. I stopped. Because the next thing David does in front of all of these people to show his commitment, David hands Solomon some papers. The papers that he hands them are the blueprints for this temple. I never knew this before. I I probably heard it, but I... I don't know if you ever sit in a service and you hear something and it just kind of... I'm sure it never happens to you. Okay. But it happens to me all the time. And I've probably heard this, but it never registered. Who drew the blueprints? Who, who wrote this all down? Well, David wrote it down. But David says in this text, as he hands Solomon the blueprints, David's going to say to him, he says, in the spirit... 
God showed me everything that's supposed to be done. He showed me the walls, the ceiling, the hinges. He showed me the doorknobs. He showed me the chairs. He showed me everything. And through the Spirit, I wrote everything down just as God said. Who's the architect? It's God. God designed this very building. And so he makes it very clear that God directed him to write it down, lest he forget any of it. And now he hands these blueprints over to Solomon with the idea, you've got to build this. This is what God has put together. You just do what God said. In fact, not only did God give all the measurements and all the description, he even told him how much weight of gold you're supposed to cover things with. How much silver is, what, what weight of silver is to be put over the different utensils. I mean, God got down to the very specifics of this. And David was committed, so much so that he says, okay, Solomon, I've written this down so we don't forget. But I want you to catch something else about his commitment to this project that God has led him to think about, to want to do. Not only was his commitment personal, his commitment was present. What I mean by that is this. David isn't one of those older men who is right around, he's old by this time, he's in his 60s, so he's really old, okay? And so so at this time, David is not going to do this, like many of us in that age bracket that sometimes we fall into. David isn't looking back and saying, I did this for God, I did this for God, I slew Goliath, I helped uh, uh, bring Jerusalem under the Jewish control, I did this, I did this, I'm done. I've done enough for God. I don't need to serve anymore. Not David. Not David. David is going to serve in the present. Even though David is here at this moment, he's done a lot for the Lord. And even though in his lifetime, there's a lot of things that he's ashamed of and he's repented of. He says, right now, I'm still serving God. I am, I am not going to quit. I'm not retiring from service for the Lord. I am living in the present and I'm going to serve the Lord my God right now. In, in fact, David... David isn't one of those people that doesn't want to serve because it ain't the way it used to be. This is going to be a change. This is going to be, you're no longer going to have to go down to Shiloh or Hebron. It's going to change. It's going to be in Jerusalem. So people are going to have to change the way they traveled. And they're going to have to change that instead of being in the tent, they're going to have to change to a new system. Well, the the basic sacrifice is the same. The feast days are the same. But some of the actual ceremony is going to shift. It's going to be more permanent. And David isn't one of those people that says, you know, when I was a kid, I remember we used to do this. And because it's not the way it was when I was a kid, I'm not going to get involved. Not David. David is adjusting to what God wants at this time and saying, I'm in. I'm in at the present. What strikes me even more is that David, talking about being in the present, David can't do what he used to do. David, we already talked about this. In the previous couple chapters, David was supposed to lead out the war. He was the military leader. But the last time he led them into battle, remember, he almost got beaten by another one of the giants, one of the relatives of Goliath. And he almost slew David. And the soldier said to David, you ought not to go out and, and fight battles anymore lest we lose the light of Israel. We, we, you're, you're too precious to us. You don't go to battle anymore. 
So David can't do what he's done all of his life. As a young man all the way through, he was a warrior, a warrior, a warrior. Did the Goliath thing, slayed the the thousands and his ten thousands of the Philistines. He led them into battle against the Syrians. He led them into battle against the Moabites. He went and got the crown from the cities when they were conquered. David was a warrior. Now he can't warrior because he's old. He has aches and pains. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But David can't do what he used to do. So does he quit? Does he say, well, I can't teach like I used to teach. I can't do what I used to do. So David doesn't quit serving. David's living in the present. David is the type of guy that says, well, I can't do what I used to do, but there's some things I could do. And he was good at. David was good at organizing. David was good at recruiting. David's good at writing. David's good at encouraging. So he did it. He lived in the present. His commitment was now. His his commitment was personal. But there's something else that I want you to understand. That David prepared abundantly before his death. He was committed up until the time that he dies. But what strikes me is that without David, they would never have seen this temple. Not Not in Solomon's lifetime, Because David's commitment was personal, it was present, it was practical. It was extremely practical. What is interesting in this entire text is how David makes practical decisions. We do this here at a church. There's a philosophy that some of you are familiar with. We talk about this when we do different seminars about our church philosophy. We talk about when we determine ministries, that we have certain criteria, that we operate by ministries, which is the same criteria that you should use in business, that you use in school systems, that you use in other organizations. It's not unique to us. But we just coined it a certain way. When you're deciding of something you're going to do or something that you no longer do or something that you vacate from, some of the criteria that has to be considered is the property, the pesos, the people. In other words, the facility, the finances, and the, and the folk. Okay, Do we have the capability of doing something? Logistically, do we have the funds to be able to do it? Do we have people who will be able to volunteer or who make themselves available so we can do it? And so David does that. He focuses on these very same things. As you go through these last seven chapters, this is what David works on. That David works to get it together. He, he needs property. We talked about it last week. That when all of a sudden there's that death angel moving towards Jerusalem, it stops just north of the city. And at Arunos or Ornans, either name, his threshing floor. Well, David, as you remember, went out there and built an altar. And God said, sacrifice at this one altar, and everything's going to be reconciled and put away. And David went out there, and he offered to buy the land. Ornan said, hey, I'll give it to you. And David said, I'm not making sacrifice to God without it costing me. It, it isn't, it's no sacrifice if it's not costing me. So I'm going to give something to God, and he gives Ornan the price of the property. So now they got the property for the temple. The very spot where this death plague stopped, where Abraham offered Isaac 850 years before, this very mound, threshing floor, is now in David's possession. He's got the property. So now what he's got to work on in the next few chapters is he's got to get the material put together. You can't build without 
logs, without bricks, without stone. So what we read in the next few chapters, and we read it already, David prepared iron in abundance. That David prepared the nails for the door, the joints, the weights, the cedar trees. That David says later on, he makes the comment, timber also and stone have I prepared that you may add thereto. Solomon, it's, it's the, everything's ready to go. It's, it's there. My parents built a home one time. And the home that they built when we first moved to central Minnesota was a home that was put together in three days. From beginning to end in three days. They had the foundation for the basement already in. But what they did is it was a prefab home. I don't know if they still do it, but it was called a Wassa home. They made them in Wassa, Wisconsin. And they would bring this thing in sections so that you would have the bathroom is one section they would drop onto where it's supposed to be. They would bring a wall put it there, another wall that was all completed, put it here, and they would put the walls, to, and everything was just lowered in place with a crane. And it was, it was a fascinating build to watch, done quickly. And so after three days of building, we were able to move inside from, from the time that they started the building of the house itself. Well, David prefabbed the entire temple. He's got everything ready. No wonder Solomon can get it all built and everything done in seven years. Just because David has all the material. He was committed to getting the material. No wonder he says, I've been doing this for years. I've been stockpiling the wood, the iron, everything that was needed. Now you need people. You need to have people to be able to maintain a temple. What people do you need? You've got to have priests. What else? What would you think you would need in, in a building? Okay, you need masons to build a building. Okay, you need carpenters. Well, what? Somebody say something over here. You need guards. You know, I hate to say this, but uh, don't you need people to clean? Does the, does the building clean itself? Hey, seriously, do you honestly think this building cleans itself? So David has to think this through. If we're going to have a temple, we need all of this. So what he does is he arranged for priests. It gives us three chapters. Three chapters are talking about the priests. It seems so boring reading the names. Okay? And so if you're like me, you go big name, big name, big name, big name. And you get through it. And then you stop and say, but there's got to be a reason for this. Well, he's giving all the information, all the detail. And we learn that there's 38,000 priests that, he's, that he lines up. David's got to get them recruited. And he starts with men who are 30 years of age and upward, but as he goes through some of these different jobs, the age is lowered to 20 for the janitorial and things like that. And so what happens is he assigns these people their schedule, that they are going to work 2,000 a week, and they're going to work for a couple-week period, and so there's, there's all of these 24,000 working the rituals, the sacrifices, this is their rotation of those 24, a thousand. But then he has another 6,000 who are going to serve as people coming to the temple and they have disputes, they have, they have to have their animal inspected, they have to do all those things. He's got judges for that. He um, assigns maintenance workers, janitors, people that are called porters. Those are the people who used to carry all the, all the tent of the tabernacle. Now they're given other jobs to carry other things, such as the food, the sacrifices, the animals. But somebody's got to do that. Somebody's got to take care of it. And as you go through these lists, he organizes gatekeepers. 
Now, a gatekeeper doesn't seem like much to you and me, but they're very important. Their job is to guard the entrances, to make sure that no unclean item comes in. They have to investigate the animals, no unclean sacrifice. They have to make sure the gates are open in the morning, they're closed at night. They have to make sure there's a night security. They have to handle any disturbances within the temple. Could it possibly be that some people get frustrated with each other while they come to worship? Couldn't imagine that happening. So there's these guys. They're going to be the guards, keeping guard of the treasury. Now, people bring offerings in. Somehow, this offering has to practically be handled and put in a secure spot. Just like we have different things that, you know, so many men have to be with the plate or the offering boxes. No one person ever. There has to be multiple people. It has to be locked up. We have all these systems of protection for your gifts as well as the integrity of those men. That had to be done. Then David says, okay, I, I also need the treasures to count, to keep track. So here he's got these treasures who, by the way, the bulk of the treasury that comes in is spoils of war. There's a tremendous amount that comes from warfare. But they're going to collect, and the collection has already been taking place. If you mark this verse, there's been offerings given for the temple all the way since Samuel. Samuel did it. Saul did it. And even people like Joab, who were really kind of, really a, a non-dedicated, but they've been, they've been individuals who have been giving to the temple. So there's offerings all along. And so David says, okay, we're going to have all these funds. Somebody's got to watch them. Then as part of this worship, they need to have music. Or David wanted to have music because music is so integral and David's such a musician. So we get a whole chapter devoted to the musicians. He talks about how there's 288 skilled musicians who are the leaders. That those who are the most cunning, skillful, talented, those who have been trained in it. And they have instructors as well as those who are being instructed. And he makes a comment that I've never seen before. I read it, but it never registered. He says, and they will prophesy with the harp. Now, that gave me a whole new insight of some of the possibilities of prophesying that's mentioned with the gifts of, uh, of the tongues and healings and others in the New Testament. What's it mean to prophesy with the harp? Well, you're using music. And so with music, if you look at the men who are put in charge of the music, three of them that are listed write 16 different psalms that are songs for the worship. Their prophesying by the harp may very well be, this is how they're sharing those psalms that they wrote that were inspired by God with the people. They were singing, their choir was singing the psalms that were now part, going to be a part of the book of Psalms. That could be it. Or they're simply, what they're doing is taking what's already been given and they're putting scripture to music. And they're singing Bible. They're singing Bible verses. Well, these people, they were trained. And if they weren't trained, they're going to be trained. And so he talks about how these people are getting trained and there's some people in charge. That it's organized. It's not just anybody comes in and does their own music however they want. It was an organized music part of program for the worship. And then their theme is to be, we're supposed to give thanks and praise to God. This isn't supposed to be singing about us, focusing on us. It's supposed to be focusing the music on God and his greatness, his goodness, and giving him praise. That's the music. Now, when he talks about the music, there are some other things I want to just throw here. Okay, I, I know this seems so technical, but it is really interesting what happens. When he's putting this all together, that David chose all kinds of people. 
He chooses all different levels when he does it. And some of the people are described as small and some are great in their positions. In other words, David thought it was important enough to organize all of these people in all different levels of contributions because every contribution was important. Every one of them. Where where he says, okay, all these people, even if they aren't as skilled as the musicians who could play music, could they still contribute? The answer is, Yes. Okay, they weren't the ones who were actually doing the sacrificing. But could some of those people still help? Yes. They could still have jobs where they could contribute. That was their assignment. So he goes through all of the Levites, and he gives all of the Levites who were the tribe selected to work in this tabernacle, he gives all different levels of work and job employment to them. Isn't that similar to what he talks about the church today? When in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about us being a body. And this body has many different parts. Which part is the most important? The whole body. Which, what, what is the most important part you know, when it comes to the ear or the mouth? What's the most important part? Is it the head or your foot? We well, you can't go anywhere without your head. We know that. But Jesus Christ being the head, which part, as we're connected to Christ, which, which one of us is essential to the body's growth? All of us. All of us who are part of a church, we're all able to make contribution. It may not be the same. That's okay. It may not be as much as others. That's okay. But everybody is supposed to be making contribution to the body because every part is essential to the growth of the body. Interesting. David had that concept all the way back in those days. And then as well, when he determined, I found it extremely interesting, several times he says they were chosen on the rotation based upon lots. Now lots today, something gets throwing of the dice. Lots in the Old Testament was almost uh, often done with the Urim and Thummim and the rocks that were pulled out and they would give direction. I don't know exactly how it worked. And, and quite frankly, all the scholars I read, there's different ideas. But whatever way it was, the lot chosen. David said, I did this with the great and I did this with the small. Especially the musicians. He says, I chose when they were doing it, not based upon their age, their skill set, or experience. I gave all of those who were gifted in that area, I gave them chance. By casting lots. So it takes away this whole idea of favoritism. It takes away this whole idea of, of you know, focusing on your friend or nepotism with family or age. He did it all by lot. And so he chose those who were supposed to be coming, that, that were working. It wasn't, okay, this priest group, they're my best friends, so they're going to get the prime months for it. No. The priestly order of who comes and offers sacrifice was done by lots. So he, he didn't choose this group and always this group for Passover. This group and always this group for another one of the holidays, holy days. It was all done by lot, which allowed for God's intervention providentially to help put this in place. I, I just found it fascinating. 
how he, how he just does this in such a way that that same system was in place all the way in the New Testament when Jesus Christ's arrival is beginning? Do you remember Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is serving on a rotation by lot? And it happens to be he is in the temple the very day that all of a sudden the angel comes and meets, speaks with him, and he's there in the holy place and tells him you're going to be the father of John the Baptist. He doesn't believe it. His voice gets worse than mine, and he's unable to speak for months. That system was put in place by David, and it lasts for years. I was reading the story of a man by the name of Roland Hill. He lived, as you can see, back in the uh, early 1800s, and he was in Britain, and he noticed that they had a postage system that was really pathetic. They charged whatever you were sending, they would charge based upon miles. So the farther you sent something, the more it would cost, to the point that some postage, uh, postage letters cost an entire day wage. And then others, they'd cost very little. One penny is where they started. But the idea that they had at that time is you don't pay to send the letter. They collect from the person who gets the letter. So if the person didn't want the letter, they refuse it. Or what you could do if you cleverly, cleverly wrote on it, write on the outside. Get your message on the outside so when I deliver it, Deb reads the message and says, I don't want the letter. Okay? And so he thought, he thought this was a very ineffective method. So he came up with a clever idea. He said, you know what we should do? And he proposed this after studying. We should propose this idea that you charge the person sending the letter and then put some gum on the back of a stamp or something that could be applied to any type of envelope they choose. And the idea was adopted. Within two years, they doubled the amount of postage they were handling for less money, and they got the cost of a letter down to the point that it lasted for decades at this one level, and they were still cost-efficient. It cost letters, no matter where they were sent, one cent. One penny per letter. He was a hero. Okay. And within 10 years of his, his Reformation ideas, 30 countries around the world adopted. And guess what? We're still doing it today. We still have that method. It was a great method. Well, David came up with a method that was still being practiced all the way up to the New Testament. Something else that strikes me is David in organizing, he's very zealous. He's very zealous, but he doesn't sacrifice orderliness for zeal. When it comes to worship, there still has to be order. It still has to be organized. We should be enthusiastic. We should be excited. But we, it's got to be systematically organized. And so we know that. We know that God's not the author of confusion, even for the church today. Even when worship is taking place and we gather, there, God makes it very clear. We're not supposed to just come in and wing it. We're not supposed to gather and just everybody does their own thing. Can you imagine if I had stood up here and said, hey, listen, for the next hour and a half, you do whatever you want in here. Well, a good number of you would have said, I'm out of here. Okay. And others, what would be taking place? Well, it wouldn't end up being 
centralized worship. It wouldn't be teaching, learning, singing in unison. It would just be every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. It would be confusion. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, that was what they were doing in the early church, something like that. And he comes and he says, you can't do that. Because even when the unbelievers come in and they see such chaos, they will think you are crazy. So organization is very important. But David, with his zeal, he was still orderly. Now, I just, this personal commitment of being practical, we talked about it real quickly. He got the materials, he got the people. Could they afford it? I told you already that the building costs more than $6 billion in our current economy. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Did they have the funds? Well, David talks about it. David says that he's arranged for the funds. In fact, as he starts talking about what he's doing, David in chapter 29, chapter 29, David does something that is kind of unique. David holds a fundraising banquet. I was thinking about entitling this the greatest fundraising banquet ever held. It is amazing. He gets all the leadership together of the tribes and of the peoples, and they're going to have a banquet. But as they're starting the banquet, David stands up, and David says, hey, listen, I'm not boasting, I'm not bragging. He's doing it for example setting. Watch what he says he's done. Furthermore, David... The king said to all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, inexperienced. And the work is great, for the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. That's an underlined verse or phrase. Now I have prepared with all my might for the house of my God the gold for things to be made of gold, the silver for things to be made of silver, the brass for things to be made of brass, the iron for things of iron, the wood for things of wood, the onyx stones and the stones to be set, glistering stones, diverse colored stones, and all manners of precious stones, marble stones in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection to the house of my God, underline, there's his zeal, there's his personal commitment, I have of my own proper goods, of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God, over and above all that I have already prepared for the holy house, here's what I'm giving. Even 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, 7,000 talents of refined silver, to overlay the walls of the house thereof, gold for things of gold, silver for things of silver, and all manner of work to be made by the hands of the artificers. And who then is willing? So David tells them, this is what I gave. Nobody forced me. Nobody coerced me, but I gave. And as I've given out of affection, out of gratitude, out of all that God has given, I've given, I've given what I can give. You know, what's amazing is he's giving even in his old age. He doesn't think that as I'm old, I don't have to give anymore. He's giving out of the things that have been captured. Most kings in the Old Testament the loot that they would capture, they would build more armaments. They would build their own houses, their own monuments to their name. Not David. Not David. I mean, in all seriousness, do modern politicians get worried about their own legacy? Does it ever happen? I suppose so. Not David. David's not about his own legacy. David says, my affection's on the house of the Lord. 
because this is important. This is God's program for this day. So I'm, I, this is where I'm at. So David gave. When we start thinking and putting it in modern terms, how much David gave when it puts in the gold and the silver, David's personal gift that he gave was $5.9 billion by yesterday's gold standard per ounce. That's a lot of money. That's just in the gold. Then David gave millions of dollars of silver, which means a couple things to me. David's got the bucks. There's no doubt about it. David's, David's got money. Now, I don't know how much he had left afterwards. Never says. But this much I know. Not only did he have a lot of money, he gave a lot of it to God's work. He gave a lot of it to the Lord's work. That is commitment. That's zeal. And so what happens here is David then, what he does, I stopped, I stopped reading at the last, the last phrase. He says, this is what I've done. And then he goes, Where's you, what are you going to give? He says to the crowd, after the front, did you catch that phrase? He said, and who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? David understood the giving to this temple project. It was service to God. And he says to all of his friends, family, relatives, what are you going to give? And I don't know how they did it. I don't know what they did, if they did promissory cards, if they, did, if they passed a plate. But between them all, they gave very generously. So at this banquet, they raised almost another you know, $500 million. With that in mind, I'm ready to pass the plate. <laughs> That's not what this is about. This is not about a message for you to give, 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 give. That's not what this is about. This is about David's dedication and how committed David was to the program of God. That David was, he, he's, and then what happens? After these people give, I, I just want you to catch it's the people, verse 9, the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly, gladly, or in the New Testament it would be cheerful giving. Okay, hilarious giving. Because with perfect heart, they offered willingly to the Lord. And King David also rejoiced with great joy. Go down to verse 20. David said to all the congregation, Now bless the Lord your God. And all the congregation blessed the Lord their God, their their fathers, bowed down their heads. They worshiped the Lord and the king, and they sacrificed sacrifices unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings. On the morning after that day, even a thousand bullocks, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, drink offerings, sacrifices in abundance. They ate, they drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. And they made Solomon, the son of David, the king, the second time, and anointed him. And so you have this tremendous rejoicing. The fact of the matter is some of you keep asking how can you say David was a man after God's own heart when he fell into sin on occasion because the bulk of David's life was a man who lived for God. The focus of David's life, especially his latter years, was to do something for God. Something that God wanted. God gave the blueprints. And I'm going to dedicate myself because this is how we're going to share with generations. This is how we're going to reach even around the world. And I'm going to give. And in fact, I don't care what Solomon gets. I don't care what the other kids get. I'm giving my six billion to God. And, and that may not seem much to you and me. Take the money out. Uh, in that sense, David was dedicated. David was all in on doing for God. Just... He's willing to resign his job and say, son, let's get it going. 
He's willing to just say, come on, folks. And by the way, I'll point out tonight, at the time that David holds this banquet, David is weak. David is, is tough getting out of bed. But he stands up, and that's why it's emphasized in the Hebrew. Twice, he stands before the group and says. So David is just, he's energetic. This is the thing that gets him going, is I want to serve God. I want to do for God. And his focus was the temple. That's where the energy went, because that's where God's energy was. And so this whole idea that just brings me to just say, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is just tremendous. This is a tremendous example of somebody whose heart is after God. Let, let me bring it all together. It's not the same thing. We're not living in the same time period. We all know that. We know that this is, we don't have kings and priests anymore. We have political leaders, but we don't have this system of kings and priests. We know that that's, that's off the table anymore. It's not there. In fact, the only priest that we have today is everyone who is born again. Everybody who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, they're their own priests. They can go directly to God in prayer. So we don't have to go to a preacher anymore. Thank God. Aren't you so glad you don't have to come and confess your sins to me? Okay? Because one, you don't know if I'm going to keep it quiet. Two, that's between you and the Lord. And three, I don't want to hear it. I got enough of my own issues. So we're glad that that's a different system. We don't have a temple. Aren't you glad that this morning you didn't have to bring in your sheep and your lamb with you? Okay. You know, it's so nice that you didn't have to haul them in. And one by one, we have to cut their throat, shed the blood, and deal with it. That's just gross. Okay. And so it's, just, it's so nice. Some of you, I know what you're thinking right now. I didn't bring animals. I brought my kids. Um, so, you know, and that was enough work to get the kids in. So glad we don't have that system. And all of that is because it's all been replaced. Jesus Christ said, all that sacrifice is done. It's, it's finished. When he died on the cross, he calls out, it is finished. That, what they sang about before, the idea of the cross of Jesus Christ, how precious it was. Such an ugly thing, and yet such a precious thing. Where Jesus died and suffered for our sins, and paid with his blood, his life, so that our sins can be forgiven. He paid for even the Old Testament saints, whose sins were put on credit card, via the sacrifices, but they were paid by Jesus, actually. So glad that Jesus was able to call out, it is paid in full. And now we come. We don't have to pay for our sins. We don't have to sacrifice for our sins. Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all, praise God. And all we need to do is come by faith and say, please, Jesus, forgive me of the sins that I have done. Give me the gift of forgiveness that you have paid for. And we call upon the name of the Lord, and what's he do? Whosoever shall call shall be saved. What a, what a beautiful thing. So we don't have that anymore. We don't have the temple anymore. Good thing we don't have to run to Jerusalem anymore. We don't have that travel. But what God has changed it with is churches. The churches now. 1 Corinthians 3, there's two temples mentioned. One is your body, and one is the body. And so this is where we get together and we worship. This is ministry. This is the body. This is the temple of Christ that we come and worship. And so the thing that doesn't change is God still looks for commitment. He looks for commitment that is from people whose heart is after the Lord. 
Are you committed? Are you still committed to the Lord that we gathered here to worship this morning? Let let me see if I can put it in simple questions. If they wrote a book of your life at this point, how many chapters would be about your commitment in serving the Lord? In serving the Lord through the local church, which is his program for the day. How many chapters? David gets half of the chronicle is about his service to the ministry that God has going at that time. What about you? One chapter? Zero? Half? Where's your commitment? If, if we were to say you're committed, somebody described you, would they say that your commitment is very personal? You're, you're engaged. And you're doing it now. Not in the past, but you're doing it now. And you're doing it in practical ways. Contributing to teach. Contributing to get out the word. Contributing to helping others to grow. To minister to the widows. To help out in the areas of, of teaching and Bible study. And yes, I can ask this question. What will we have for commitment that's genuine when we do our special offering that's not for our church? We take none of the funds next month that come in that one day. It goes for missions, broadcasting the name of God around the world. What will be our commitment at that day? Commitment can be seen by the pocketbook to some degree. If if they wrote your life, a person after God's own heart, is that your description? The description of you? Or would it be a person who's doing their own thing? David's a hero. He was genuine. He's like you and me. He fell flat. But he was genuine in his commitment. Are you? Father, thank you for this study. I needed it. I needed the challenge. I needed the the rebuke. I needed the opportunity to be brought short. If there's any here in this room that need the same thing, please minister by your spirit, by them recalling, remembering. Father, if there's any here in this room who do not know Christ as their Savior, they have yet to call upon him, I pray that even right now they would call upon you and ask you to be their Savior. You're here this morning, and while your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and I have yet to finish praying, If you're here this morning and you do not know for sure you're on your way to heaven, I've talked just briefly about the idea that Jesus Christ gives the gift of forgiveness through his sacrifice. He did that so you can know that you have eternal life. If you're here this morning and you do not know, then why don't you get up, go to the side of the auditorium, the right side of the auditorium. There's a set of double doors there. We have staff there waiting to show you from the Bible what you need to do this day to make sure you're on your way to heaven. I'll tell you right now, it's not joining this church. It has to do with establishing a relationship with Christ. While I continue praying, feel free. Feel free to go and talk with somebody right now in private. Just get up and go over that way. Father, there are so many here who have done that in the past, who have prayed and asked you to be their Savior. And I pray, Father, that you would help them. Help me to follow through with commitments to make sure it's actually working. It's actually now. 
to make sure that we're, we're sacrificing in a practical way of time and treasures, doing what you have called us to do, and never, never giving in or giving up, but serving you to the best of our abilities for the rest of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.